from my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. There's no lever we're going to be able to pull at High Holidays which stops climate change in its tracks. But can we give your soul the nourishment to make you be a vessel for positive change in the world and to be able to do your small part? I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman. Today, I'm speaking with Rabbi Nathan Kamisar. We'll be discussing Rabbi Kamisar's essay, Breaking Open, A Paradigm for Jewish Prayer. Okay, so if you listen to us regularly, if you're a repeat listener, you know that I sometimes tend to give a lot of background information set up for, for my interviews. Um, I, I like to, to ground the listener and and and, and orient you, and, and it might be said, I also like to hear myself talk, which um, which may or may not be true. But here today, I, I don't think I need a lot of setup. Um, basically, we're talking with a congregational rabbi about preparing for the high holidays, both how the rabbi prepares and, and how those of us who aren't rabbis can, can prepare. Um, we talk about the power of prayer, and what's great and what's challenging about being in Jewish community. And, and we also get into a little bit about those who happen to be the majority of American Jews who don't go to synagogue in person or, or virtually on the high holidays. Can they get something out of it? Um, Rabbi Kamisar's responses are engaging. I, at times, I found them surprising, and I really enjoyed this conversation and regardless of your level of observance, belief, I think it really offers a nice framework for leading into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the days of awe. Before we start the interview, a reminder, all of the essays discussed on this show are available to read for free on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. By the way, there, there, there are also lots of high holiday resources, uh, some of it very new, on reconstructingjudaism.org. You can find it all directly through the homepage or through the Learn and Celebrate tab. And while we're at it, Ritual Well, another groundbreaking website that Reconstructing Judaism operates, um, ritualwell.org. There's plenty there. Just just go go to the homepage and you'll find prayers, poems, rituals, new ways to think and do high holidays. Okay, great. Now it's time for our guest, Rabbi Nathan Kamisar. He is the rabbi of Society Hill Synagogue in, in Philadelphia. He also serves as rabbinic liaison and is a member of the steering committee of the Center City Kahila. Kahila means community which is a network of communities representing the diversity of Jewish life in urban Philadelphia. He is a 2018 RRC graduate. So, Rabbi Nathan Kamisar, welcome welcome to the podcast. It's good to see you. Thank you so much, Brian. It's such an honor. I listen to a ton of podcasts, and I always uh, envy guests on podcasts because sometimes it's nice to just be able to react and not have to come up with stuff. So I feel good to be in my position. Thank you for being in your position and thank you for inviting me. Of course. And, and good to, good to see you again. It's been a while. Um, I, I think last, last time we talked on, on air, you, you, you were the rabbinical student and now you are the rabbi. So <laughs> we've come to you for answers. <laughs> oh boy. Well then we've, we'll see whether we've come to the right place, but I'm, I'm honored to be here. Um, great. Great. So, I was wondering. Um, we're talking in in the dog days of summer. This will be this will be out um, before before the high holidays. Um, if you're able to to lift up the curtain, I don't know if there's a curt if there's a you know a, a literal curtain a little and 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 you know take us like what is it actually like to be a rabbi preparing for the high holidays? I mean, I don't know what what I figure. I figure. Uh, hours and hours spent like scrawling sermons on paper and crossing them out or or like you have a big 
diagram and you have to put people and places or just what what is um what is the actual process of preparation like for for you so for me it you are not you are the only way in which you're far off is the like pictorial representations. I wish, I, sometimes I see people who have like storyboards, I don't know about for sermons, but just in other creative projects. And I, I love looking at the color schemes and the post-its and all that. I wish that was me, it isn't. For me, it is that that uh, sort of impending blinking cursor at you. Um, I really love it and, and it's stressful and I really love it. Um, and the stress honestly is mostly self-imposed. Like my, the... The sort of the grind of the normal year honestly doesn't afford me the opportunity for depth and introspection that preparing for a high holiday sermon does. So, you know, during the course of a year, I'm doing, uh, typically I compose a, a Friday, every week during the school year, I compose a Friday night to our Torah and prepare a, a Torah discussion for Saturday mornings. But because it's got that level of like, rapidity and turnover again there's not quite the level for like depth this is a spiritual practice for me as much as it's, as it is um you know something i'm doing for my congregants even though you know i i care about what they think of my sermons and i i love that i'm able to give it to an audience and feel a reaction feedback in the moment are people laughing when i hope they would laugh are they are they listening intently when i hope they would listen intently but a lot of it is, is for me, it's the chance to really write deeply about some of the core spiritual questions, Jewish civilizational questions, societal questions that, that I've been wrestling with, that I imagine my congregants to be wrestling with. And so it's both the, for me, the most pressure packed time of the year, again, largely self-imposed and the time of the year with the most depth and, uh, and opportunities for creativity. And I was going to ask, and I'm sure there, there's, this is probably always a struggle. But, but um, do you, do you, as the as the spiritual leader, get the time and space to go through the whole preparation process yourself? Is 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 the preparation you do for leading kind of simultaneous with with your own process? How does how does that work? Yeah, great question. I I often find myself like wishing I just had, you know, days and days of uninterrupted time to write, to think, to read. Um, and that's just not the reality of, uh, of it, especially over the last several years when each year we were essentially, you know, reimagining how high holidays would be implemented. You know, in 2020, it was entirely virtual. Um, in 2021, there was uh, a, a an in-person there it was hybrid um a limited in-person presence i want to say and then um 2022 we were back in person but still kind of figuring out what that would look like in the first time that we still felt covid and it feels like this year will be you know as close to 29 the first year that's essentially like 2019 so each year required kind of new levels of if you want to call it like logistical layers to to add on to it that's on top of all the just general coordinating of yeah who's going to have which roles. Um, it, it definitely is a team production. Certain, certain volunteer leaders um, provide an immense amount of outreach to individual members of the congregation to you know, find out who's going to be opening the honor, the, the ark at which moment, um, who's going to have uh, contributed their own kavanah, their own written intention to a particular moment of a service. Uh, we have a, uh, we're blessed to have a talented Pazan canner who... You know, we're, we're walking through, all right, when are we doing a responsive part? And you're going to sing up until this point in the line, and I'm going to start reading at this point in the line. So it is a balancing act between the kind of the parts that I are, are more of a, a solo part, like a sermon, um, and the parts that are far more team-oriented, just the, uh, you know, in COVID, we, were mad, we had to think through, like, all right, what's going to be if the kids are entering in this part of the building? And the adults are in this part of the building. How do we figure out that building flow? So there are a number of things that go beyond just the me getting to be in my, you know, on the mountaintop and then come down. Uh, so, so that's the reality of it for sure. So, 
Here's one of my dreaded, like multi-part uh, questions, dreaded because I usually flub it somewhere along the way, but but it was interesting. I looked it up according to the 2021 Pew survey, only a quarter of American Jews attend high holiday services. I was, I was, I mean, I've studied this stuff. I went, I went to graduate school, but I was still surprised at, at that low number. And, and I'm thinking maybe you could, maybe you could, maybe I'm wrong that of those who, who are actually show up a fair, a small majority sort of go through their traditional preparation process. So um, if that's, if, if that's right, I guess I had, I guess my two part question is, you know, for, for, for those of us who, who don't know, like what is, what is the actual stuff you're supposed to be doing before you sort of show up and, and, and sit for morning Rosh Hashanah or whatever, whenever you arrive. And, and, and I guess along with that, how do we, maybe, maybe I'll stop there and, and bring in the second part later. Sure. So there's a lot I think about with, with the month of Elul, with the Jewish month of Elul, the final, the final month in the year. Uh, one is that it's when rabbis over time have named that it's a, it's a moment as we're getting ready for this, you know, Rosh Hashanah is in, is in many ways associated as a day of judgment. Some of us liberal Jews uh, kind of recoil from that notion of king on high, watching watching the sheep march by and rendering judgments. Um, but that is an element of it. Now, it's also the day of remembrance. Uh, and the notion of remembrance for Yom HaZikaron is, is really about being remembered with love. There's a notion that when, when God, for instance, remembered Sarah, took note of Sarah, that's a suggestion of, oh, remembers compassionately, takes note of in a compassionate way. So this notion of a day of judgment is paired with a notion of sort of compassionate remembrance so that we feel a sense that all of our parts are being seen. Uh, and though we may have, as, as, as the common translation these days goes, missed the mark, um, the, the, the one seeing us in all of our, in all of our parts recognizes uh, the source of, of all we're trying to do, all we've been through, all, all we care to do. And so, sees us for all of who we are. The, the lead up to that, the lead up to that day of judgment, compassionate judgment, is Elul, when we're called upon by the rabbis to do cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of the soul. The idea is we don't just go in on Rosh Hashanah not having given any thought to the tshuva we're trying to do, the, the course correction we're trying to do, um, but that we've kind of spent some time uh, reflecting on it. That, 17th, 18th century rabbis even talk about the equivalent of, you know, meditating on it, of practically journaling on it, of, uh, of talking to a trusted advisor, dare I say therapist about it, whatever, or a rabbi, whatever the person might be for you. Um, so there's definitely introspection is called upon for the month of Elul. Um, and Elul is also uh, known as being a mnemonic, an acronym for Ani Dodi Vidodi Li. Um, uh, I am my beloved and my beloved is for me. And the beloved in this context, in the traditional context, is as thought of as the divine. And so it's a moment where once again, there's this kind of introspection paired with kind of a compassionate listening partner, so to speak. Um, so all we might be inclined when we name Cheshbon HaNefesh as this kind of, as this accounting of the soul, as this self-scrutiny, we might be inclined to have a connotation of that being harsh, but again, it's done in this context of Anila Dodi, the Dodi Li. I am for my beloved, and my beloved is for me. This kind of unseverable connection between you and the divine, and therefore that should give us the permission to be fully transparent. All of that said, I don't go into leading Rosh Hashanah services by any means, assuming that congregants have done that. I don't. I don't see it as a should. Uh, and if you haven't, you've misstepped. I see it as an opportunity and. Oftentimes, modern life doesn't, you know, have us in tune with that rhythm. So the high holidays really are the first time that many congregants, so like era of Rosh Hashanah or Rosh Hashanah morning, is the first time a congregant is okay taking that breath to be able to do that. Fortunately, services are pretty long, so uh, they have the opportunity to kind of deeply reflect while there. Um, but you know, I I certainly try and hold space, assuming they haven't necessarily done that. You know, if, if you even want to call it homework, 
uh, it's really a you know an extra credit assignment more so than a than a, pre, a sort of a a prerequisite for for Rosh Hashanah. Wow, interesting. I'm not sure if the Pew survey actually it probably incorporated uh, virtual you know Zoom services or not, but um, I am wondering for the majority who seem like of Jews who aren't who aren't aren't in uh, attending or, or participating in a service in some kind on 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 these days does does the tradition give give any any technology or means to to get something out of it like is there you know would you say hey if you can't be in synagogue or at your computer on this day you can do x or x or y yeah great question you know i know that sort of tactile moments uh, have always, especially always and especially now, speaks to con- contemporary, the contemporary and the Jewish experience and the contemporary human experience. So we know that a lot of, you know, contemporary liberal Jews, those those Pew studies often show that um, that Jews stronger associations with their Jewishness are, for example through a Jewish sense of humor than it is through a sense of like needing to sit in the pews on uh, a high holy day. Um, You know, as a congregational rabbi, I think that there is a particular value add to uh, sort of the space that is held by, by trained clergy, by being, by sitting alongside dozens, hundreds of fellow community members and feeling connected to them. So I think, you know, I'm often making the case for sort of the value of a traditional synagogue experience. At the same time, to your question, yes, the, when I started to say those tactile moments, the first one that came to mind was Tashlif. Um, it's ironic because uh, over the centuries, as I understand, a lot of the sort of the, the rabbinic leadership was, was against Tashlif as a kind of folk, kind of superstitious really? ritual that you know, had people that it actually was more of a folk ritual that uh, rabbis were concerned that um, that kind of the regular Joe could would think that he or the regular plony, I should say, could just kind of throw a piece of bread in the in the river and that would be good enough. Um, and again, there uh, even later generations, as I understand it, you know, there was a the, the rationalism sort of felt felt nervous about that uh, ritual, but it's one of those. That, that really stuck with a lot of power. I think people really respond to symbols. And, uh, and so Tashlich is definitely one, again, to define it, Tashlich being when you go the, the day of Rosh Hashanah or the second day of Rosh Hashanah falls on a Shabbat and cast some, your sins away to the waters. Um, that's one. And then there's another, which is, of course, eating and the apples and honey and uh, you know having, having the good intention of a sweet new year surrounding that. Uh, maybe holding some space with some family members to to talk about your your wishes, your intentions for the year, um, and you know what it's going to take for you to make it a sweet year for yourself and for those around you. We we talked a little bit before uh, we we um we hit record. You're you're the you're the parent of of young kids. Um, my my kids are are similar age difference. They're a little bit older. Um, I know every congregation sort of has a different setup but but I definitely remember feeling a bit of ch- feeling it those those early parenting years where where those sort of long hours in synagogue contemplating my life in the universe were were gone there was like you know little snippets in between you know whatever a crying baby or 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 taking a toddler out to the playground i mean do you have any any advice for parents, you know, on how, how to get the most out of the day or how to, you know, cut themselves some slack or. Yeah. Yeah. What a great question. And it's sort of like being, being a parent of young kids is, is hard in a million respects and being a parent of young kids while being a rabbi is hard in a, in a million respects. In some ways, I don't have the firsthand experience that you're naming because my job so calls for me to be present for the the high holidays that it's that that my my wife really steps up uh, 
her mom steps up, you know, we have, we have a, an amazing nanny who steps up. So, you know, it's one way in which I, you know, have to be kind of like very boundary to, uh, for high holidays. Um, so that's, I'm realizing like, as you're asking the question, how, how fortunate I am in that respect. That said, yes, there are, there are a few things I will say. One is I feel like the Jewish community is getting better and better at, uh, now I'm sure this is not the case at, at, in every place, but it's getting better and better at the recognition that, uh, of exactly the difficulties you're naming. And so to have, for example, our synagogue has childcare, uh, at, while services are going on. Um, that said, it's not always, you know, it's, it's so, so I would encourage anybody who's listening to, you know, that there should, depending, obviously, you know, I, I'm also privileged to be in a, in a robust urban environment in Philadelphia where there's a million different shul options. Um, and, you know, some listeners might be in more rural areas where there aren't all the choices. But if you're fortunate to be in an area where you, there are, I do think Jewish institutions are getting better about offering childcare. That said, one of the phrases you used in your question was cut some slack. Absolutely cut yourself some slack in terms of, you know, it's it's funny how in my experience Jews often sort of take a um, uh, no pain no gain approach to a sort of uh, institutional Jewish experience, especially on the high holidays. If I don't if I don't sit for hours, you know, bored to tears, hungry, uh, I'm not doing it right, and I don't deserve the atonement that's supposed to come at the end of uh, at the end of the holiday. Um, in no way do I see that as a paradigm that was ever intended for us. That was speaking of folk traditions. That's one that somehow has gotten passed down. Um, but yeah, there, there's an understanding that like when you're, uh, I think going back to ancient Judaism, part of the reason that, uh, I, you know, I don't know this to be true, but some of the reasons I think about, um, in very traditional Judaism, women not being bound to quote unquote time bound meets vote is that that's, that's impossible when you're, when you're raising young kids. Um, and to me, that's like an instinct in Judaism that says, uh, we understand the difficulties with young kids and we know you're going to have a more, an experience with much more latitude when it comes to whether you want to call it your observance of meets vote or, uh, your spiritual experience. And, you know, I, I've heard the, uh, kind of, we say that children aren't in the way they are the way, uh, you know, that's easier said than done. But, um, you know, I think we should be invited to feel that that kind of sensibility when we're experiencing the high holidays uh, with kids present. And we've got to just go with the flow of, of where what they're going to let us do. And that is our our holiday experience. And that our, we should feel renewal uh, through that as best we're able to allow ourselves. Go with go with the flow. I, I like it. Um <laughs> So you have um, you have an evolve essay that focuses somewhat. I think it focuses on on prayer and and the the experience of prayer. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your your own personal theology and and what you see as the the function of of prayer. I, I feel like that's a standing on one foot question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a big question, and it's one that, to your point, probably sits at the the center of my rabbinate in the sense that it um, is really whether I realized it or not, um, what motivated me to go to rabbinical school to become a rabbi and to now now in my rabbinate. Um, I think that I was raised in a very traditional household. Um, a pretty halachic household and raised on um, a pretty, uh, I guess I would say, you know, intimate familiarity with the Siddur um, as part and, and the, the prayer Siddur, book, right? The prayer books. Thank you. Um, the, and, 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 and on the high holidays, the Mahsur and, um, and the prayer book being kind of a central feature and demonstration of your, of your commitment to Judaism and of, um, and so in my, in my teens, um, in my teens, I sort of fell away from it, that it wasn't interesting to me at all, had, you know, had no, no place in my life. Um, but, you know, when I was getting in my early 20s, getting ready to graduate college, looking for an anchor, looking for meaning in life, looking for direction, I found myself gravitating towards um, 
back towards, I should say, like a traditional orientation towards Judaism. And uh, the prayer book being like the, the primary way to experience that and explore that. You know, it's, it's, it's laid out to you that you can, can or it depends on whom you're asking, should uh, Davin pray three times a day. And so, you know, I looked to the prayer book language as the means of, of kind of following through on my intuition that re-exploring Judaism would be worthwhile for me. And I guess the key word in the, in the Sidur for me um, was, became, I didn't realize this at the time, but was really atah in the sense of Baruch atah Adonai, blessed are you. Um, I found like a real kind of conversation partner in prayer. You know, as I found myself um, looking, searching for meaning, for, an, for an anchor, for direction, for a North Star of sorts, that that was a really helpful, I'm going to call it device um, centering feature for me to kind of be able to direct conversation um, to God and really to feel, to feel heard as I was doing so, to feel, uh, to feel like my, my words, my pleas through the words of the Siddur were, were landing, were being received, that it wasn't kind of into an empty ether, you know. Um, and, and various phrases in the, in the Siddur really kind of gave me some scaffolding, phrases around the um, Benu, you know, sort of uh, let us cleave our hearts to you, for instance, um, or um, anything around Rachamim, mercy and compassion re resonated for me. And so for a while, that was really good for me to be able to rely on that. Um, over time, as my as I continued to explore Judaism, my first of all, my prayer life vacillated a lot from uh, from this that I'm naming a very kind of traditional orientation to taking big breaks and and it not doing anything for me. Um, but now I've kind of rediscovered it, and I give myself more permission now to do what the Hasidim refer to as essentially like keep keep to do, which is um, something like self self-disclosure and it really means what I kind of translate as and what a lot of you know, translators translate as just kind of talking to God again that that you framework was very helpful for me um, and uh, just kind of holding space to talk to God so now what I do um, at least as of the last couple of months or so is uh, I remember reading a Heschel passage and I think I include this in my essay which is like what if we you know what if we just just an hour a day sort of surrendered to stillness. And um, so that's, that kind of has served as, a, as an anchor for me now, where I give myself, I do a half hour in the morning before the, the girls get up, before Lila and Nina, the four-year-old and the one-year-old get up. I do a half hour. I, I sit and fill in, but I just, it's really just in quiet. Talking to God sometimes, sometimes it's my mind just wandering. Sometimes it's my mind just thinking about work and, you know, and then all of a sudden the, the buzzer goes off and the 30 minutes are up. Um, but then finding another 15-minute pocket somewhere in the middle of the workday and then another 15-minute pocket, you know, after the girls go to bed. It doesn't happen every day, um, but it is something that has really buoyed me. And so that, that kind of you framework, the being able to, to have an address for, for my thoughts, for my concerns, for my tsuris, has been my worries, has been really uh, profound for me. And, and so has the freedom uh, to be able to to do so not only strictly through the the marpeya the the kind of prescribed prayer service but uh, my own kind of spontaneous whisperings of the heart. With with uh, meditation, I've I've gotten pretty pretty okay with sitting ten minutes, and some, that that the fifteen minutes really really pushes it. Where where I just I just feel this. This existential, I have to get up and do something right right now. I guess you've you've, you've uh, you push past that, or or you note it and and move on if you if you get that feeling. Yeah, that is a really good. I I definitely I've I've definitely experienced exactly what you're talking about. And when I when I you know name that there were long parts of my you know life where prayer didn't hold any, or where I found myself having deviated from a prayer practice, that that was I'm sure. Uh, I'd, I'd much rather be, you know, I'd rather be reading. I have so many emails to send, like, oh, um, I got to get to the gym. All, 
So this is definitely not to say that like this, this is better. Like this hour is like the prescription. And, um, you know, my, I think my life is so go, go, go right now that I, I don't know if it's just where I am in life, but, uh, sort of, it, I, I need this in a way that I didn't at a different time. Um, you know, with young kids with the congregation, I need the stillness in a way that maybe I didn't, my soul didn't, didn't in those other chapters of life. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud, but for whatever reason, um, also I just, I love Heschel and love anything Heschel says. And so if he prescribed it, then I'm like, all right, I, <laughs> I, I should try this. And uh, right. so, so that's, so that's what I've been going with lately. If you're enjoying this episode, if you're moved to think about the high holidays or Jewish practice in a different way, or even look at a, a, a religious leader in a more humanized fashion, please take a moment to, to give us a five-star rating or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. These ratings really help people find out about the show. And by the way, big news in Evolve Podcast World. We are so close to 100,000 episode downloads. Um, just 4,000 to go, give or take. So thank you for listening and, and please spread the word and help us cross that threshold. We're going we're gonna to do a happy dance. We're going to share it on social media. We're going to figure out some way to celebrate this milestone because it, it tells us that what we're doing is is reaching people. It's getting into your earbuds and and hopefully making a difference in your life. So ratings, reviews, spread the word. And thank you for getting us so close to this mark. You told uh, in your essay, you told a story about King David and that it that it, it it told you something powerful about prayer. I was I was wondering if you could kind of give us the 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 thumbnail of that story and what, and what it's, uh, what it's taught you about prayer, especially related to the high holidays. Yeah. So there was always the, the story of David and Bathsheba, um, was also, was always very captivating to me, perhaps because it also includes a role for a prophet named Nathan. It doesn't, doesn't get that much play in the Bible, but, uh, in the Tanakh, but, uh, gets a little bit and this has a prominent role in, in this anecdote. So, it, it caught my attention. This is the moment where David, whom we still hold up as really, you know, those of us who know all the, all the details might not, but the religion as a whole holds him up really as the paragon of, I don't know, Jewish leadership. Uh, 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 you know, we, David, Milach, Israel, Chai, Chai, Vekayam. You know, David, King of Israel, live, live and endure. When we're doing the Amidah, we talk about the, the seed of David. So David is both like the, you know, paradigmatic, leader, the, the model for the Mashiach when the Mashiach comes. And like when we kind of like scrutinize the story is so flawed. And this, this anecdote is like the, the kind of, I don't know how else to say it, but like the grossest version of that. He, um, he's king. He sees uh, as the, as the Leonard Cohen song makes famous, he sees the, um, the beautiful Bathsheba bathing on the roof, uh, calls, calls him to her. Um, she's married. Uh, he lays with her. She gets pregnant. He doesn't want anybody to find out what's happened between him and her. So he calls her husband, Uriah, back from the front lines fighting, I want to say the Philistines, one of the, one of the tribes, and, uh, and hoping that Uriah will, will sleep with her and they can, uh, you know, assume that Uriah is the rightful father of this child. Um, Uriah is too, I guess, noble and virtuous to, uh, sleep with his wife, sleep in his home bed while his fellow soldiers are still on the front line. So refuses to do so. So David concludes for himself somehow that he has no choice but to, uh, essentially, uh, eliminate Uriah. This is, this is the moral, I don't know, uh, sort of contortions that his, his mind goes through, his frantic mind goes through. So sends Uriah back out to the front on a essentially the equivalent of a suicide mission. Knows he's he's not going to make it back. He doesn't. Um, and Nathan, local local prophet, uh, comes and uh, sort of offers David a parable, talking about it's uh, 
talking about uh, some landowner of sorts uh, who, who is rich and greedy and a different, um, a, a peasant who has but one sheep and cares for this sheep like it's his, like it's his child. And uh, the, the rich landowner has a random visitor traipsing through and wants to, uh, thinking he's upholding some values, wants to treat this random visitor well and takes the peasant's one sheep and uh, gives it to him for a meal. And David, when he hears Nathan tell this story, is outraged by the obvious injustice of it and says, what a, what a terrible thing this person has done. And Nathan, the, the prophet, says simply, well, that, that's you. That, that's who I'm telling the story about. Um, the cloud seems, the, the, whatever wool David had pulled over his own eyes during this moment seems to finally get pulled back. He, he takes a cold, hard look in the mirror and is potentially one way of looking at it. Uh, this is a generous read that I'm giving of it, is, is shattered at, at who he's become. Um, and out of him pours the Tehillim, the Psalms, and in particular, one Psalm, Psalm 51, um, which is, uh, has a little kind of superscription at the beginning of it, which essentially says that this is the Psalm that David wrote after the incidents of, of Bathsheba. Um, so David writes this Psalm. It's, it's a really, you know, it's a Psalm that where the author of it, whether it's David, whether it's somebody else, is really just pouring their, their heart out on the table, recognizes how, how truly fallible they are, um, feels a sense of, of um, is reaching out to God in, in, in pleading for compassion, for mercy, put, putting, spilling their guts, putting their heart out on, on the table. Um, the notable piece of this is the verse that is in, uh, a verse that is in this psalm is, uh, my God, open up my lips so and let my mouth speak your praise. And um, as you may know, that's that's the, the little verse that uh, it's usually in small print in a siddur that uh, opens up an Amidah. Um, and the Amidah is really like the chance for anyone who's praying in contemporary Jewish life to, you know, open up their, their heart to God. Um, and... Uh, there is now, of course, prescribed liturgy, but traditionally and, 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 contempor and in contemporary times, there's an opportunity there to, you know, to, to pour our heart out spontaneously as we so feel called. And it's so interesting to me that the verse the rabbis chose, yes, makes sense on like a superficial level of, okay, God, open up my lips that my mouth shall declare your praise. That makes sense just on, in that context to be the opening line of a, of a prayer um, because it's saying, let whatever comes out next be, be good. But it's also the context is when David is like so, has been so heartbroken for his own doing, um, you know, self-caused self heartbroken. Uh, I, you know, that's my, again, charitable read of the experience, um, that it all comes pouring out. And in my own experience in life, um, there have been times where sort of that level of like, oh my, of, uh, Suspending all, I don't know, um, your own sense of your, your will, your, um, your, your, I don't want to say your goodness, but your, 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 your merits, um, putting all that to the side can be when the, um, kind of most profound and spontaneous prayer moments can happen. Um, and so to me, it's not only, a, it's a little bit of a, a code, a seek, a code for, as you're entering into this prayer moment right now, do your best to, to suspend all that stuff, to suspend will, to suspend, um, you know, preconceived notions about what you're deserving of and where you think you should go and do your best to just open up the heart as best as you can, especially as you ask in those high holiday moments. Thank you. Um, so I've got a question from from our executive producer Rabbi Rabbi Jacob Staub, your your former teacher, um, and this one sounds like a question he might have asked in in you know the final day of class or something. But it's a it's a teacher kind of question. But um, it seems like a good follow up. How do we, as as Reconstructionists, as modern Jews, pray for compassion from God if we don't literally believe that God hears our prayers? 
Yeah. Yep. And I, um, so first I have to make the, I have to make my usual kind of plug here for, um, uh, I know a lot of reconstructionists are often, I guess I want to say that I don't, I can believe in a God who hears my prayers while at the same time not believing in a God who is sort of going to intervene on the, on the material plane, on the physical plane for me. So the, I, I guess what I mean by that is um, I can experience, I can experience being heard in my prayers while also not expecting that if I pray to win the lottery, I'm going to win the lottery or while, or pray that this team, you know, wins a football game is going to win the football game. Um, like I don't experience the universe and God in such a way that says, yes, God is, you know, God is listening to prayers. And if someone prays just right, God will push a certain lever and that, you know, indeed rain will fall on that. You know, I do think we have free will. Uh, the universe is, is is on the course that it is on um and in other words i don't think god is you know in interrupting human actions because someone prayed in a particular way but i do think we can you know turn to god a, a god who hears for a set for just this the, the sense of uh a feeling heard and feeling seen and b the sense of love and light and life that flows from that source. So I think, so, you know, I don't, uh, so I don't think we have to sort of believe in supernaturalism, for example, to believe in a God who, who hears our prayers. That said, I recognize to, to Rabbi Staub's point, and uh, I, I think you're right. I can totally picture him asking that question. And hello, uh, hello, Rabbi Staub. Hello, Jacob, um, in, in class. And I recognize that a lot of people, right, are, are for example, Kaplan's um, God is the power that makes for salvation. Looking, looking at these more, I would say, force-like, non-anthropomorphic depictions of God, um, and there too, you know, I there's a there's a compassionate flow that we can kind of open ourselves up to. Um, you know, Leonard Cohen, who who wrote the uh, who wrote Hallelujah in the now kind of overly popularized song that's really based in some ways on this biblical anecdote also has the, um, the cracks are where the light gets in idea. And um, to me, that's a lot. That's a, a kind of non-anthropomorphic summation of, of what I'm talking about, which is like a little bit of, a little bit of heartbreak, a little bit of breaking open is necessary for that light, that, that love, that uh, that divine compassion to seep through, and so I think that's how I think about it in more reconstructionist, non-anthropomorphic terms. Yeah, we kind of just had a, a a thing in our household where where my my older daughter, for the first time ever, openly prayed to God for something to happen. Her her arch nemesis, aka her her younger sister was was ill and was in in danger of missing a camp overnight that she'd been looking forward to and 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 my older daughter hello maya you know literally got down on her knees and 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 prayed to prayed i guess to god that that her sister would 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 get better and miraculously her sister woke up the next day feeling a hundred percent and maya's my older daughter was running around their house. Yes, yes, Judaism works. Prayer works, and I mean, I was glad she thought to do it, and 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 I loved that the sisterly. I was like, is this a moment for a theological conversation? Probably not, but it's almost like it's almost like somebody you know somebody wins at gambling, and then the next time they try it, <laughs> it might not work like yeah. that. But um, what I love so so. What I love about that is even I think there's value in human value. It's very to let yourself uh, yearn that much, you know, and the prayer is really oftentimes a container for yearning. And I think the spirit wants to do that. And so even, you know, even if we don't believe in a God, right, even if you don't want to, you know, test that a second time around where the night before a test you haven't studied at all. And you're like that prayer thing worked. I'm gonna, 
I'm going to rely on that. Uh, the level of yearning she opened herself up to there, you know, not to get preachy and rabbinic, but I think there's something, something beautiful in that. So, you know, even if you have a different understanding of how prayer works, the, the pouring out of the heart there, I think is good for the soul in any event. Uh, so to name check another reconstructionist rabbi, we had rabbi, uh, Michael Strassfeld on the program a few months ago. I don't know if you know him personally or just just know of his work or or both. Um, um, we didn't we didn't get into this as much in the show, but I read farther in in his new book, um, Judaism Disrupted, and there's 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 a few, uh, I guess, provocative ideas in there, and and one of them was um, I'm going to quote him for a bit because because because. Um, he said better than I could, but despite a lifetime of praying and leading services, I have come to believe that traditional prayer no longer works for most Jews and requires radical reconstruction. Um, he says a little more about its archaic language, difficult theologies, um, and and he wonders about a post-Rabbinic Jew, Jewish service that would and here I'm quoting again, provide time to reflect on Kavanaugh intention of the past week and prepare for the coming week. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, it doesn't go into huge detail as to what this new kind of service would look like. There's a, there's, there's a few pages on it, but, but, but it seems like calling for, you know, huge experimentation to go, you know, to, to sort of leave behind this, traditional service we've inherited, you know, with, with adaptations and, and in lieu of something new, I'm like, I mean, it seems like you, you, you take a lot from the traditional service. So I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering how you react to that. If you see room for, you know, for many different avenues. Yeah. Great, great question. I, um, I do, I do know Rabbi Strassfeld. I'm an avid, uh, user uh, rely I rely avid uh, a lot on his Jewish holidays book I have it behind me uh, and I have, I have uh -huh. a copy of Judaism disrupted and he's going to be visiting Society Hill synagogue uh, to talk about the yeah oh, wow. so I'll, I'll read it before he gets here to, to talk about it with him um, I did actually have it I knew that was an idea that he was interested in because um, Rabbi Deborah Waxman told me that at one point and so what I absolutely support is the notion and the recognition that there are going to be times in Jewish history when we have to make radical departures from where we are. You know, the, the most classic paradigmatic example of that is the, you know, the temple being destroyed and rabbinic Judaism essentially replacing it. You know, the Torah, the Torah doesn't have a, a, a much of what is in the Siddur in it, although, although a lot of what's in the Siddur is in the Torah. You know, the ritual life in the Torah is far more based around uh, sacrifice than it, and, than it is around how we now experience prayer. And so I don't think it's without precedent to have moments in the arc of Jewish time to make dramatic departures. And I understand 100% where Rabbi Strassfeld is coming from in terms of, you know, the content of the Siddur. Uh, is it resonating for people? You know, the, the second paragraph after the Shema, which is in some, which is in some ways the um, the one that we most direct our congregants' attention to, uh, because it's, we've just we've just brought their attention together for the Shema. Um, we've just chanted the Ve'ahavta, and then we say, "Okay, read silently to yourselves." And it's a paragraph of with this like classic articulation. Granted, you can make a lovely midrash about it, and I'm happy to talk about that. But this classic articulation of if you follow God, rain will come. And if you don't follow God, you know, uh, your, your fields will dry up and there'll be pestilence and all this stuff. So I totally understand where he's coming from on the notion of uh, the content of the Siddur being potentially problematic. My, my caveat is that, um, is a couple of things. One is we still have the strong communal pull um, both a communal in contemporary time and, and accumulated history um, that uh, people still look for, my experience is that people still look for a shared framework to kind of 
um, sort of organize themselves around. And that the Sidur, while, while at times not aligning with individuals' personal theology, serves as that, that anchor, that rallying point in a way where a new kind of made up service, um, so to speak, is while while I think it could you know I, this isn't to say never you got to start somewhere but for now I um, I still see a lot of yearning for uh, sort sort of being grounded in tradition paired with I do think you know I I don't learn I don't lead a prayer service where um, I just kind of assume uh, that people in the pews need no no scaffolding. Uh, for the the hour and a half that they're that they're there, you know, part of my job is to be constantly kind of giving little little covenant, little uh, little sort of like, uh, okay, here's something to be thinking about while we're doing this prayer. And you're invited to either be present to the community while they're doing that prayer, or you're invited to, you know, I often use like a group hike uh, metaphor, like you can kind of, you know deviate from the from the well-trodden path and you know you'll find us you know in a few minutes if you need to um so so i think for communal reasons we still kind of want to be uh uh want want to kind of anchor around the sudor and the other reason i think it's helpful is i go to the um the part of of the of the torah of of shemot of exodus when when Moses, you know, asks God if Moses can see God, can see God, and God essentially says, like, no, no one can see me and live, but here you can see this little, you know, I'll pass behind you, by, by you as you're in the cleft of this rock. And the analogy I'm drawing here is that, like, it's so hard to, if if we're interested in orienting around God in some ways, which I think, if you're trying to make the case for contemporary religious life. You can't divorce yourself from God or else, in my mind, people just, they won't choose religion. They'll just choose something different altogether. So to the extent you're going to have God there to begin with, um, you you need, you, you can't just engage with that directly. You need some scaffolding. You need some metaphors. You need some some imagery. You need some frameworks to use. And again, the Siddur offers that. Is it the perfect framework? No. Um, and so over time, you know, we discard some parts and we add some parts, but it still serves as sort of like the anchoring for our community. Um, and so I still see a lot of value, even while I understand the, the motivation that's driving Rabbi Strausfeld's thinking about that. Interesting. Okay. So um, it seemed like in your essay, you talk about vulnerability and, and surrender. And, and these these seem to be concepts that are that are getting a lot of play in in the broader culture um give myself away as a as a bono u2 fan i just i just read his uh 600 page memoir called called surrender um which which actually is very comes from a very spiritual um perspective but i guess you know what are these concepts in, in a Jewish framework and why are they important to the to the high holidays? Yeah. Um, the phrase I've been, you know, I think there's a part of the high holidays that presumes we desire to to change in some ways, to, to transform in some ways. That, you know, we get to the high holidays and we do that, that introspection. And, you know, it, it may be, you know, it may be that some of us essentially do that cheshbon hanefesh, do that internal accounting and actually say, you know what? Yes, I did uh, accidentally take an extra orange from the, you know, from Acme, but uh, from the grocery store, but for all intents and purposes, I'm feeling pretty good about me. That that may be the case um, for a lot of people. My experience is that most people, when they really come to the high holidays, it's because there's something that they want to transform, that they want to change. And I've been, you know, one of the really simple phrases I've heard this year that's been working for me is the is the if nothing changes, nothing changes line. And that that's really, you know, self-directed in a lot of ways. You know, if, if you want a change in trajectory for yourself in some, even in subtle ways, you know, even just in the ways you talk to yourself and the ways you talk to others, you know, um, what's, what's the change going to be like uh, to get there? And in, within yourself, what change are you going to initiate that's like that? 
and for me, that's often a question where I have no, I, I, I you know, I, we all uh, sort of make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And um, so oftentimes to, to initiate those kinds of changes, what, you know, Maimonides talks about, that's the only real form of teshuva is when you basically are presented with this, the, the, the same opportunity that you've made mistakes at before and finally do it differently. That's teshuva. Um, to get to that place, a level of surrender and vulnerability about who we are, why we are the way we are, what, what has led to us being that way. Um, offering that up in some ways to the divine, however you understand that, to really say, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I should be doing here. I, I am a little lost. I am a little, uh, I'm not going to try and presume that I can, you know, through my, again, force of will, exert myself into that, at that place. Um, and I think another story I cite in the, the essay is this, uh, it's from, elite, from, from one of my teachers, Bobby Brightman, and maybe somebody else about like the, the, the person trying to be, you know, spiritually pure, going to the Zen master and saying, uh, what if I try really hard to be, uh, have spiritual equanimity? How, how long is that going to take me? And the Zen master says like 10 years. And then, and then the person's frustrated and they say, well, what if I try really hard? And the Zen master says 20 years. And uh, <laughs> that there's a degree of like, you know, a kind of a cliched version that we don't always feel comfortable with in, in Judaism is like to, to give it up to God that there's a way in which we need to like suspend our kind of preconceived notions about what it is we need and like open ourselves up. That's all, in some ways what the essay was about, kind of that cracking open, letting the light in is sometimes needed for that kind of shift. I know I've, I've experienced that. And so it's trying to get to a place where you're not try, kind of trying to pre predetermine the outcome, but really being open to to whatever pathway may be before you. So I think I've got a, a, a last question and it's, 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 it's not, it's not a light one, but we, we, um, we sort of said before, before we got on the air, I, I mentioned AI. I know, I know you've, you've worked in technology law and kind of have a, a strong interest in technology and ethics. So I was like, well, is there a way to, to bring it into the conversation? And I, I think, I think there is, um, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I've, I've read a couple, what if stories, what if, what if, um, you know, what if AI gets turned over to, you know, weapon systems gets turned over to AI, um, you know, suddenly nuclear war is a concern again, the, 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 um, you know, global warming democracy here in, in, in the U S and Israel, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll leave, I'll leave things out. Backlash against LGBTQ, gun violence. Like, I mean, everybody thinks like our time is unprecedented and, 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 you know, more perilous than before, but it, it, it's, it, it's not completely irrational to have some kind of sense of existential dread with all this, all this stuff going on. So I, I guess, to those of us, maybe maybe me included, who who might show up at the high holidays carrying some of this existential dread, what do you think folks should should do with it? Is it the time? Is it the time to say, you know what, this is this is my chance to focus on on me and what I can do and and my own behavior? Or or I, I mean, because because obviously it's not necessarily healthy to carry around, but 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 it's hard to avoid. Yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really good question about, well, so first of all, just to, you know, agree with you, it is hard not, like, you, you hit a great list. I think, I think, uh, I think my wife and I played a very, a very gallows humor game of like, which is going to get us first between the next, the next pandemic, AI going rogue, right, nuclear war or climate change, like which one is going to get us first, you know, and so that is a question i think on a lot of people's minds the question being yeah like what the heck world like how what are we supposed to do about all of this and i think and then the sub part of the question is right like what is the specific role of the high holiday experience in relationship to that uh to that um and i wrestle with you know i i wrestle with how much should my sermons be sort of a 
a social commentary, you know, or um, uh, what do we, you know, the existential angst is a good way to frame it. And how much is it about, you know, um, the, like you said, the kind of the internal, the soul experience, how much do I sort of nourish my own, myself as, as a vessel for, you know, transformative change in the broader world, knowing, and this is when the, you know, the, one of the Jewish cliches is put out there about, you know, it's not, it's not uh, on me to complete the work, but neither am I free to desist from it. You know, it's the, all right, well, how can I focus on my kind of small corner of it, which starts with me, which starts with my neshama, my vessel, and uh, my soul. And by me, I mean, you know, each of us individually. So, you know, I often try and with sermons kind of strike a balance a little bit of, right, that to take a moment, yes, is there, what, how can you, how can you ground yourself in what is, you know, the, the, the whole equanimity prayer, what, what I can control versus what I can't and wisdom to know the difference is, is, is famous for a reason and being, looking at what those parts that are within yourself that are within your control and understanding the anxiety that's coming up while also knowing that, yes, it is incumbent upon us. Like the, the, the way the, the universe seems to operate is that uh, human beings, you know, uh, we, we do need to heal, repair the world that we're confronted with. If we're not going to do it, uh, it's not going to happen. So, you know, I see the high holidays as a moment to, for the soul to get nourished, to feel aligned with yourself so that you're going forward throughout the year in a way that you feel like you have a solid foundation to make those changes, to do your part to make the contributions to those changes. Uh, there's no there's no lever we're going to be able to pull at High Holidays which stops climate change in its tracks, you know, but can we give your soul the nourishment to make you be a vessel for positive change in the world and to be able to do your small part in the world? By the way, before I let you go, I suppose I should ask what you're do you, do, what you're talking about this year. Are you are you able to say is it is it is it in a a hidden file with a with a locker? So, well, I will say that this is this is my part of the, this is where the arc. The point of the arc that I am in this year is to is the part where I say I haven't left myself enough time. It's not going to be good. Uh, what was I doing, you know, taking, taking June off and putting my feet up on the desk and now I'm scrambling. I, it, is a, it is a part of my process every year. My wife is already rolling her eyes at me from saying that. So um, a short version of that is to say, still figuring it out. Um, but we've touched on some of the themes, you know, some, some themes I will be talking about are, one, I, I always do a sermon. This is, I, I feel like this is like part of my job, but I also think it's important, is to make the case for um, institutional Judaism in the sense that to make the case for, as rabbi of a synagogue, to make the case that engaging with synagogue life throughout the course of the year can, can, can do that nourishing of the spirit through those, the communal connections, through the conversations that are held in Torah discussion, through the you know, the slight engagement with God. Like I do, you know, part of my job is to like on high holidays, that's my bite at the apple with people to like make the case, like, you know, keep coming back throughout the year. I, not in a, not in like a scolding way, not in a like, why aren't I seeing you? But in a like, that's my chance to say, you know, drop in for some Shabbat. Trust me, it'll, it'll, it'll be good for you and it'll be good for us. We need you and hopefully, and you need us. So the, one of my sermons is always in some way making that case. Um, Another is the is is that the kind of this I can I can say this that um, the Vahavta Lerecha Kamocha we always go straight for the um, that's the you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself the you know again I use the word cliche a lot in this I'm, I'm doing some of the greatest hits in Judaism that's one of the you know, greatest mm -hmm. hits we oftentimes jump over the um, jump straight to the love your neighbor part and that's what we focus on. And there's a way in which um, I think what's often missing from that conversation is love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's, there's almost an implicit message of, hey, are you sure you love yourself? Because you need to. And B, it's going to be hard to love your neighbor if you're, if you're not loving yourself. They're actually very much connected. And so, you know, there's, it's, it's important to kind of like find the balance between like 
self-love and narcissism. So, you know, you want to be curious, like talk about that. But I think a lot of us skew in the other direction that there's actually, we're too hard on ourselves. And like, what is, what, what might it take to explore that further? Um, and then the third is I want to think about, you know, uh, the imagery I'm kind of drawn to this year is, is the altar and the, the experience of, uh, of what it must've been like to, um, you know, this, this is very early in the process, really, as you said, getting behind the curtain, but I'll go there briefly is, um, the, the, the visceral nature of, you know, washing the, whatever you want to call it, the entrails of, of this offering you're bringing and burning it up on the altar. And I'm almost imagining there's like a vicarious element of that. Of, all right, what, what is inside us? What is, what, is the, what is the muck that has accumulated inside us that we're going to be washing off and then kind of burning up, transforming into smoke on the altar and, and therefore kind of uh, lightening our burdens in many ways so that we're able to, like we said, looking at these daunting challenges that confront us, democracy under attack, climate change, you want to throw AI in there. Um, how, you know, how can we unburden ourselves a little bit so that we can carry some of the burdens of the world? What's the muck that's holding us down? Uh, those, are, those are the early stage processes that I'm in with this. And they oftentimes transform over the, over the time that I'm working on them. Sometimes they transform too long. Sometimes I'm trying to squeeze like five different ideas in there. So be it. Uh, you know, over time, I try and work on that. But that's where, that's where I am in the creative process now. Well, by the time people hear this, it'll be polished and, and finished. So, so you can greet your future self with a job well done. From your mouth to the non-anthropomorphic God's ears. What did you think of today's episode? I would love to hear from you. Evolve is about meaningful conversations and you're part of that. Send me your questions, comments, feedback. You can reach me. This is a real non-dummy email address at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. Okay, our, our whole team will be back soon with an all-new episode. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Wax. The theme song, Ilufinu, is composed by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm the host, Brian Schwartzman, and I and my whole team will, will see you next time. Lihitra Ot and Shana Tovah.